Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, this episode highlighting uh, black women of the suffrage movement is really appropriate timing-wise because it's coming out the last week of February, so the last week of Black History Month, leading us into Women's History Month. So in my mind, this episode is perhaps a a bridge between those two months because there should really be a lot more intermingling of the two, especially after the research that we did for the podcast a couple weeks ago on Susan B. Anthony. Right. And one of the things that became very clear over the course of our research into Susan B. Anthony, her life and her work and her single mindedness when it came to the women's rights movement and women's suffrage was that there were several important names in black suffrage history who were essentially overlooked. Yeah. And not only that. One thing that's often left out of the evolution of the women's rights movement is that in a lot of ways, it grew directly out of the abolition movement. Yeah, efforts toward abolition were really the first opportunities and the first times that women uh, gathered in support of a social effort and really banded together. And not only did they band together, but they started kind of publicly organizing and publicly getting out there and writing and donating and agitating for a cause. Yeah. And it wasn't just white women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony who were getting involved in these causes. For instance, if you go all the way back to 1832, you have, for instance, black women in Salem, Massachusetts, who were forming a, an anti-slavery society. And that was followed up by a similar movement in Rhode Island of the same year. And uh, many more of these anti-slavery groups that were organized by black women would follow. But uh, we should note that a lot of those societies were short-lived. Right. And while the abolition movement was already kind of alive and well and thriving in Europe, in England in particular, in America, the number of suffragists grew slowly out of this abolition movement, um, particularly in the Northeast. And it it did become more diversified nationwide. And through this growth and diversification, it really was how women sort of learned about reform efforts and started participating. So, for instance, in 1833, you have a convention held in Philadelphia that was meeting to establish the American Anti-Slavery Society. And this was led by white abolitionist William Lord Garrison. And it's significant because not only were they talking about abolition and the need to free slaves, but also the need to... Uh, empower women along the way. Right. They actually passed a resolution uh, commending the abolition cause to women and urging them to organize uh, groups uh, made up of women. And by 1837, there were more than 1,000 of these anti-slavery society groups and about 75 of them. Not so not I mean, not a huge number, but about 75 of them consisted of Women. And it's important that Kristen noted that this American anti-slavery society was led by William Lloyd Garrison because there were folks out there called Garrisonians. 
Um, and these these folks uh, didn't necessarily oppose women's suffrage, but they emphasized instead the right of women to gain equal access to things like education and employment and particularly equality within marriage, the family, etc. They also believed in things like the married women's rights to property, wages, control over her own body and custody of her children. And a very important figure in this movement was Lucretia Mott. She was a Garrisonian who also in 1833 took the lead in forming her own group, the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And that society was racially integrated as well. And among its members, you have notable black women abolitionists like Grace Bustle Douglas and her daughter, Sarah Maps Douglas, as well as Margareta and Sarah Fortin and Harriet Fortin Purvis, who were daughters of a prosperous Philadelphia sailmaker. And I think their their names will probably come up again in our conversation. Uh, but one other thing I wanted to point out, too, about the American Anti-Slavery Society is that one of the reasons that they really advocated for abolishing slavery, I mean, on so many different levels, but they also focus particularly on the sexual abuse of slave women as one of the, you know, the, the main reasons why slavery needed to stop. And thinking about that in the context of past podcasts in which we've talked, Caroline, about um, how that that issue of black women and sexual abuse and how for so long that wasn't even considered a crime. Right. Um, and how pro- progressive that would be mm-hmm. in the 1830s for these Garrisonians to be taking that stance. Right. Particularly since, as we have talked about before, kind of the overarching view of black women at the time by both black men, white men and white women was that they were just these over hypersexualized beings who like, oh, well, that's OK. We don't really need to worry about that. So the the view of black women at the time was was so negative and they were sort of the victims of both sexism and racism all at the same time, which also lends even more significance to this early intersection mm-hmm. of black and white abolitionists, male and female working alongside each other, not only for the freedom and enfranchisement of slaves, but also for women as well. And so speaking of that, some historians actually say that the real spark of first wave feminism starts not with Seneca Falls, as we will mention in a moment, but in 1838 at the anti-slavery convention of American women. And they had to build an actual convention hall specifically for this event because a, a lot of members of the, the white public in particular were outraged at this event taking place. And there were like angry mobs outside and you have women at this convention, including Maria W. Chapman and Angelina Grimke Weld speaking to crowds of men and women alike, which is a rarity in these days. And you also have uh, black and white uh, people who had attended this convention walking arm in arm outside of Pennsylvania Hall where it took place in order to protect in particular the black women inside mm-hmm. who had attended from these angry, angry people, angry racists, we should just go ahead and say outside who did not want this to be happening. Right. And I don't think it was that year. Wasn't it the following year that that building was actually burned down by an angry mob who was just so incensed by the idea of black and white people gathering together for this cause? Yeah. 
Um, well, I think it's interesting also, you know, you mentioned Angelina Grimke. I, I really find it interesting to kind of watch the evolution of the women's rights movement alongside abolition in things that Grimke herself said, because, you know, toward this cause of abol- abolition and enfranchising African-Americans to vote, you know, she also encourages women to move out of their sphere, their domestic sphere, um, and no longer remain satisfied in the circumscribed limits. She said that it's the duty of the woman to overthrow the horrible system of American slavery. So it's interesting to see that leaders in this movement at this time are basically calling on women to throw off these their own chains that, you know, their own social situation and really uh put their all of their force behind this movement. So they're very much parallel at this time. Yeah. And so that leads us into the Seneca Falls Convention in July 1848, which is usually the event that is referenced as the start of the suffrage movement in the United States, organized largely by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And we should note, though, that this is when you start to see some glaring disparities between uh, white women's suffrage and black women's causes, because, yes, it was attended by Frederick Douglass, famed black abolitionist, and he, he became the first man to publicly advocate for women's suffrage. But he was the only African-American in attendance at the Seneca Convention. So it wasn't exactly, uh, even though they were like, oh, Frederick Douglass, fantastic. It wasn't exactly, you know, the most uh, racially integrated crowd. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, speaking of lone voices and racial integration, when you look at Sojourner Truth, I mean, that's a name that everyone knows. It's a common name from this era. But her name is kind of alone in all of these sources. A lot of other women of the day, like we said, have been kind of scrubbed from the record. And in 1850, so not too long after the Seneca Falls Convention, you have the first Massachusetts Women's Rights Convention, which Sojourner Truth attended. And it was documented, but, you know, other African-American women's voices were not readily documented. Yeah. And even though we hear about Sojourner Truth so often today that I think the assumption would be made that she'd be readily welcomed by these more progressive crowds of women. But even speaking before white women who might be pro suffrage, they weren't always too inclined to have her speaking in front of them. Right. Because if you look at an 1851 convention in Ohio, uh, Sojourner Truth ended up speaking on behalf of all women in her speech, not just African-American women or not just slaves. And this was despite the fact that a lot of white women at that Ohio convention actually did try to prevent her from speaking. And this kind of stemmed out of the fear that she would hurt the movement if she spoke before a hostile audience. Because, you know, in our Susan B. Anthony episode, we talk a lot about the single mindedness. We talk a lot about how it was women's suffrage or nothing like nothing can get in the way. We don't want anything to hurt the movement or distract anyone from the our purpose, which is women's suffrage, well, in their case, mostly white women's suffrage. So there was this fear that if you have a former slave and a woman, an African-American woman, get up in front of these people and they're hostile, it could sort of muddy the message when, in fact, at that convention, Sojourner Truth earned long and loud cheers. Yeah, and we should also note that that happened in 1851 
And the year before, I mean, racial tensions in the United States were starting to hit such a boiling point, uh, partially due to the 1850 passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, which in a nutshell essentially empowered slave owners in the South to pursue slaves who might have escaped to areas in the north where they could find refuge. And uh, and it's horrifying that that law was passed, but that set off this, um, I hate to keep using the word tension, but it's like it set off this divisiveness Mm -hmm. between abolition and suffrage. And you see, especially in the period from 1850 to 1870, this gradual separation of white suffrage from abolition and suffrage for black women. And just quickly, I highly recommend, uh, if you want to learn more about this topic, checking out the book by Rosalind Turborg Penn called African American Women and the Struggle for the Vote from 1850 to 1920 that really digs deep into this topic. And even though you know, we've been talking a lot about, uh, for instance, Angelina Grimke Weld and other white abolitionists and white suffrage leaders. There were other people in addition to Sojourner Truth as early as the 1850s and beyond doing lots of organizing and having leadership positions in, you know, either suffrage groups or uh, in abolition groups. Right. Yeah. When starting in the early to mid 1850s, black women's participation in the movement really become became more evident. Their voices were heard kind of above the din. We have the women who we mentioned earlier, Harriet Fortin Purvis and her sister, educator and abolitionist Margaretta Fortin, who emerge as major voices during this time. And their niece, Charlotte Fortin Jr., uh, was actually introduced to the movement in 1855. She was being educated at the time in Salem because black students in her hometown of Philadelphia were denied admission to public schools. And she was living in Salem at the time with the Remond family, who were noted black abolitionists. And the Remonds themselves were highly involved. And in 1858, Sarah Remond and her brother Charles spoke in New York at a women's rights conference in favor of women's suffrage. So there again, we We see the intersection of abolition and uh, women's rights. Yeah. And then you also have emigrationist Mary Ann Shad Carey, who joined the movement and emigrationists, uh, I should say, were people who uh, advocated for uh, slaves or free black people just moving out of the United States completely, Mm -hmm. if I'm correct. They were more they were more on the, the radical end of the spectrum. But Carey. Uh, was a powerful woman in her own right. She ran the anti-slavery paper, The Provincial Freeman, in which she and her sister Amelia Shad printed news items about women's struggle both against slavery and gender discrimination. Um, and, and they also, for instance, reported favorably on Lucy Stone's, uh, you know, white suffrage leaders, uh, 1954 visit to Toronto and also received donations from Lucretia Mott, another white suffrage leader uh, for the publication of the provincial Freeman as well. But unfortunately, <laughs> uh, due to the gender discrimination of the time, a lot of readers were, weren't too keen on Women editors, women newspaper editors. Yeah, that's so funny that amid all of these contentious fights going on, these battles for equality, the the, the problem is that they're women editors. Yeah, yeah. But that did not stop Marianne Shad Carey from attending women's suffrage conventions and campaigning for women's rights over the next 25 years. 
Right. And in 1859, you see this uh, coalescing of the movement uh, as evidenced by the New England Convention of Colored Citizens. And during the conference, women were elected to leadership positions and the convention resulted in a call for universal suffrage. And so in the 1850s, you do really see this compatibility between the politics of black abolitionists, both male and female. And it's, uh, you know, really notable too that again, you have that female leadership, not just within more suffrage oriented groups, but also among abolitionists and emigrationists. So at the same time that we see the uh, black abolition movement coalescing among both men and women, you also have more white women starting to take active political action as abolitionists. And as we said, it was this abolition movement that kind of gave birth to the political push for women's suffrage and women's rights. And these early women tended to be a lot more radical in their attempts to oppose gender conventions by moving outside of their sphere, as as Grimke encouraged them to do, and acting independently. And author Bettina Apthicker also points out in her uh, writing that this intersection of abolition and women's rights fights, both of which were revolutionary, tended to reinforce the radicalism of each movement. But, you know, it, we would be remiss to skip over the fact that there were a lot fewer limits placed on white women in terms of both time and effort and ability to focus on these political movements. Yeah, we hear the word intersectionality being tossed around a lot more often these days in terms of how you really can't untangle how, you know, gender collides with race, collides with economic status and ability and so on and so forth. And that's not a new thing. This was going on way back in the 19th century when these first movements were were really starting to gain momentum. And you can't deny that even back then there was plenty of white privilege, yield privilege happening in terms of how a, a lot of the white women involved in these movements were often middle class or elite women who typically weren't working outside the home. And so they had more time to devote to their causes. Uh, and they also didn't have to contend as much with issues like poverty or illiteracy that were often um, direct issues for people coming out of slavery. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you do start to see this erosion between white women and the cause of black suffrage. And we're going to get more into that and talk about more significant black suffrage leaders at the time when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So when we last left off in this conversation about black women in the suffrage movement, uh, we, we were talking about this issue of white privilege, for instance, coming up in terms of how uh, white suffrage leaders and abolitionists did enjoy more economic privilege in terms of not having to work outside the home, having more time to devote to their causes. Um, and, and while these kinds of racial differences were starting to uh, become more direct issues, there was a lot of harmony still going on. I mean, the fact that, you know, abolition and suffrage were working side by side is still very much the case. For instance, from 1866 to 1869, you have the existence of the American Equal Rights Association, whose goal was to, quote, 
secure equal rights to all American citizens, especially the right of suffrage, irrespective of race, color, or sex. And you have with that the involvement of big names like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, the support of Harriet Tubman, so Sojourner Truth. You have women working across the aisles, and by aisles I mean racial aisles, uh, for this movement because this is the time where it still seems like they can have a universal suffrage movement granting black men and women the vote as well as white women the vote. Everybody gets the vote, basically. Right. But things in the mind of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other white suffragists, things start to go awry after the Civil War in their minds. Um, because it was in this aftermath of the Civil War that we have Republican politicians introducing the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, extending citizenship and suffrage to former slave men. And so that's when you start to see this divide, because then suffrage gains the central place in that battle for women's rights among women like Anthony and Stanton. You have these former abolitionist allies, you know, including those who had long advocated for women's rights, becoming divided over priorities. Yeah, I mean, because at this point, probably in the minds of some of these suffrage leaders, they're like, hey, well, we've got abolition. All right. Slavery is no longer legal in the United States. So. Now it's time to really press for the vote. And there were a number of politicians who were promising suffrage leaders that, yes, they would, with the 14th Amendment, they would get the vote, that Mm -hmm. that would be universal suffrage. But no, the the word male stayed in that amendment, and there was a lot of protestations. And then when the 15th Amendment came up, uh, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were directly opposed to it. And this is when you see a major rift happening in the suffrage movement in general. Uh, because we should note that in 1867, there is a moment that is often left out of women's studies classes, that which is when the American Equal Rights Association is launching a campaign in Kansas. And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton accept funding from known racist George Strain. This is something we mentioned in our podcast on Susan B. Anthony. And this is when other women in the uh, the AERA, like Lucretia Mott, who was the president at the time, were starting to say, whoa, whoa, what are what are y'all doing? Mm-hmm. And for, from the perspective of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she was like, well, I want to publish this newspaper called The Revolution. And, you know, uh, abolition has happened, so we really need to just focus on suffrage. And this guy, George Train, is going to fund it. And there were even people like William Lloyd Garrison, who after this happened, this is a couple of years later, who wrote publicly to Elizabeth Cady Stanton saying, whoa, what are you doing? Well, yeah. how, how could you be accepting funding from this, from this racist, this known racist? Yeah, because there was that huge rift between those who felt that black men needed the vote more than women and those who were unwilling to postpone women's suffrage for the sake of black men, like Susan B. Anthony, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And so in 1869, you not only have the passage of the 15th Amendment, which granted black men the vote, but not women. You have the effective rift between the mainstream suffrage movement And so it splits into the American Women's Suffrage Association, which is pro-15th Amendment, 
And the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which was the organization led by Stanton and Anthony. And Catherine H. Palzuski, who's a professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Northern Iowa, notes that after the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, a quote unquote racist component of the suffrage campaign ensued, which is so unfortunate. There's even a book about this called A Fighting Chance. And it's basically focusing in on this time when suffrage loses a lot of momentum because of that split due to underlying, honestly, racist motivations. Because at this point, I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is writing some uh, things that we can't say on the podcast, basically saying, hey, listen, why why would you want to give the vote to a black man who might be illiterate and doesn't know what he's talking about, to put it in actually really nice euphemistic terms? Um, and other people saying, what, 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 what is happening? And at this point, podcast listeners, Caroline might be thinking, uh, we've been hearing a lot about a couple of white women, Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Uh, so now we do need to focus even more on these black women who were, regardless of whatever was happening with those, you know, the split between those two main suffrage organizations that then developed after the passage of the 15th Amendment, who had been organizing on their own and were paving the way among their own communities for suffrage and empowerment of these new and emerging black communities across the United States. Right. And we we named a lot of women whose black women whose voices emerged decades earlier in the fight for abolition um, and women's rights and suffrage. Um, and in the 1880s and 90s is when we really see the development of these things called black women's clubs. And their heyday was really in the 1890s petering off by about the 1920s and 30s. And these black women's clubs had goals that were unique to African-American women. They weren't trying to band together with white suffragists or white women's rights activists at this time. This was an effort by black women to help each other access higher education, participate in the suffrage movement. And for the black women who did join these groups, a lot of them were divided into two camps, those who did identify with the mainstream white suffrage organizations and those who developed their own agendas in these black women's clubs. Yeah. And, and the fact that they formed these social clubs that were it was more of grassroots organizing on a local level and which did develop, as we'll talk about, into national organizations. It makes so much sense when you consider the context that this is happening in. Uh, Rosalind Turborg Penn talks about this in her book, African-American Women and the Struggle for the Vote, of how after the emancipation of slaves in the South in 1863, quote, the immediate priority of freed women was to find lost loved ones and to establish viable households while attempting to counter white terrorism. And we'll talk about that more with the work of Ida B. Wells. Um, and she said that freed women in particular were more likely to see suffrage as a collective, not an individual possession. And to me, these social clubs are a reflection of that unique perspective of saying, hey, we need to, you know, build ourselves up. We need to build our communities up. We need to organize on these local levels, especially because by this time we're talking about in the 1880s and 90s, plenty of white suffrage groups were completely turning their backs mm-hmm. on black women. Yeah. And, you know, these these clubs 
uh, early on filled sort of a literary and self-improvement role for women in these various communities. Um, women who'd been denied an education at college after the Civil War. And in the 1890s, you really start to see them turning from just social and literary pursuits to more social justice and activism because you have the demise of Reconstruction, but the rise of Jim Crow. Yeah. And I mean, there is there's so much racism still simmering clearly during this time. I mean, the Jim Crow era is so notorious for that. And in 1896, we have this merger between three major national social clubs forming the National Association of Colored Women Clubs due to this letter written by James Jacks, who was the president of the Missouri Press Association, which was challenging the respectability of African-American women, referring to them as thieves and prostitutes, to which women like Mary Church Terrell, who was the first president of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, said, oh, oh, really? Really, Jacks? No. And so they continued organizing and on a, a national level and founders of the NACWC included women like Josephine Ruffin, Harriet Tubman, Margaret Murray Washington, Frances E.W. Harper, Ida Wells Barnett, and again, Mary Church Terrell, who, I mean, she was, Terrell herself has an incredible biography and um, was, I believe, educated at Oberlin. A lot of these women actually ended up going to Oberlin because, as we talked about in our Women's Colleges episode, that was one of the, the first mainstream uh, U.S. colleges that was open to not just women, but women of color as well. And you mentioned Ida Bell Wells, who became Ida Wells Barnett. She is a kind of a, an exciting character. She was a journalist who gained fame in the mid-1880s by refusing to give up her train seat to a white man and move to a Jim Crow car. Chaos ensues. Wells was dragged from the train. She hires a lawyer to sue the railroad. She won her case in 1884 and received a settlement. Um, and although the railroad did appeal her case, she therefore afterward earned a reputation as a very powerful voice against racism. And she also her her main focus for a long time was anti lynching laws. She uh, by the 1890s had started this crusade sort of working among these various women's clubs to draw attention to the issue. Yeah, and this is because she was living in Memphis at the time and there were there were horrific cases of lynching happening and I think what finally spurred her into action was uh, a black man that she knew being killed by a lynch mob and um speaking though like really quickly about that incident on the train I I I wish that that was as common of a, a historical milestone because it really was a milestone as the story of Rosa Parks mm-hmm. not giving up her seat. Mm-hmm. Because when I read it, I was like, why, why is this not in, in every single history book as well? It seems like that, uh, you know, her day had a lot to do with it. She yeah. happened to live in a time when women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Stanton were writing the feminist history books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, in, in 1892, um, she really established her national reputation as being this person speaking out, being a woman in particular, speaking out against lynching when she publishes the book Southern Horror, Lynching Law in All Its Phases. And she even goes international 
with her crusade going over to Britain to talk about, hey, this is happening mm-hmm. in the United States. We need to talk about it. Um, in, in 1909, she also helped found the NAACP. Yeah, and you might not think it could get any better than that. I mean, this woman helped found the NAACP, but her shining moment came in 1913 when, after founding the Alpha Suffrage Club of Illinois, it was the largest black woman's suffrage club in Illinois, she uh, she caused quite a stir at a march. Uh, the NAWSA, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, was marching in Washington, D.C., but black women were told to march at the back. And, you know, she refused to comply. She leaves the parade site and everybody's like, oh, good, she's gone. Not exactly. She waits until the parade starts and she just ever so casually steps out of the crowd and joins her sympathetic white colleagues from Illinois, Belle Squire and Virginia Brooks, at the front of the parade where, you know, the press was there. They captured it for eternity. And that press coverage did have an effect. I mean, it did sort of transmit the message to a lot of black women that, no, you have a place in this. Yeah, because we should note that by this time, the National American Women's Suffrage Association has re-merged together. Those two splinter groups have come back together under the leadership of, again, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Uh, but they they were choosy in terms of allowing or not allowing black women to participate, which is part of the reason why, you know, you have the emergence of these social clubs um, and these black women specific suffrage organizations and uh, just the the way that they the way that they treated these black women who wanted to participate in this massive march that was getting all this attention. And it, it wasn't all positive attention at mm-hmm. all. I mean, there were a lot of hecklers in the crowd, too. And so the fact that Ida Wells did not care again, like on the train was like, no, I'm not going to just like sit in the back. Mm -hmm. Um, But we should also note, too, speaking of this parade, that uh, in 1909, a few years before, we have, in addition to the social clubs emerging on college campuses, we have the first African-American sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, develop and um, Delta Sigma Theta, which is one of the the oldest African-American sororities, also marched in that 1913 NAWSA parade with Ida B. Wells. And I know that it, just in reading articles about it, because the anniversary, you know, was last year, um, that it's a huge point of pride mm-hmm. for that sorority. Yeah, but ar- around this time, you know, there's a lot of kind of anger and disillusionment among a lot of African-American women who are saying, we've been alongside you this whole time. You know, all the way from the abolition movement into the suffrage and women's rights movement. And now you're turning your backs on us. And a lot of it, honestly, particularly with, for instance, that Washington, D.C. parade where Ida B. Wells was told to get out. You know, a lot of these white women suffragists were concerned about, you know, rankling the southern contingent. Yeah. For instance, there was this uh, convention, suffrage convention happening in Atlanta, and this was a few years back, and Susan B. Anthony was going to leave this convention, and Frederick Douglass wanted to attend, but she said, hey, yeah, if you could just not come, that'd be really great, because we don't want to freak Southern women out, so 
Thanks. Yeah, it was all an effort to focus solely on women's suffrage, mostly white women's suffrage. Yeah, because at that point, race was seen as a liability Mm -hmm. to their cause. If they aligned themselves too much, because one thing, too, that we should note is that the uh, one of the the main strategies of uh, the National American Women's Suffrage Association for getting the vote was to go on a state by state basis. Mm -hmm. So they needed to court Southern voters who, you know, were were living in that Jim Crow era. Right. And so they were honestly worried that the participation of black women would jeopardize the passage of the 19th Amendment, which did get passed in 1920. Right. Right. And it's called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, as we've noted. Um, but uh, one thing, too, that I should have mentioned earlier when we talked about that um, splintering of the, the the mainstream suffrage movement into the NAWSA, led by Stanton and Anthony, and then the American Women's Suffrage Association, which was supportive of the 15th Amendment, that um, Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin was one of the founders of the AWSA, um, who later went on to be one of the, the leading members of the National Association of Colored Women, which was that overarching organization for all of those social clubs. So she's, you know, it's just yet another name that <laughs> is left out largely of the 1902 history of women's suffrage, mm-hmm. which for so long has been like the go-to chronicle of the fight for women's vote in the United States, co-authored by Susan B. Anthony and Stanton and a woman named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And Sojourner Truth is the only the only African-American woman mentioned in there. Yeah. And that that omission, those multiple omissions um, really discouraged a lot of people because these suffragists, as we mentioned, a lot of these, the white suffragists were of more elite social standing. And so both black women and working class white women kind of felt like, whoa, you know, yeah. we were a part of this, too, the whole time. And you've just used us as a stepping stone. You know, it was great to have us when you needed people to agitate on your behalf. But now, you know, you're not helping us out. And. You know, not too long after the 19th Amendment was passed, black women were effectively disenfranchised because of that Jim Crow era. Yeah, I mean, and throughout this podcast, it might be sounding like we're trying to paint all of the white suffrage leaders that you often hear about in history classes as just a pack of racists that we, you know, but it's that's that's not the case. This is more telling the story of how race and gender were really pitted against each other yeah. during this time. I mean, we we could move on up the flagpole and talk about, hey, well, why weren't the men in office just going ahead and taking that word male out of the 14th Amendment or out of the 15th Amendment and granting universal suffrage? If universal suffrage had been granted in the 1860s, I wonder mm. what feminism would look like today. Because you wouldn't, perhaps you would not have had this, I don't want to say dirty underbelly, but... Uh, but just like the agitating for one thing over another, instead right. of putting them together and arguing for women's rights and rights for African Americans. Right. And and there have been some historical accounts, too, looking, you know, taking a re- closer look at the primary documents of the time and, and saying, okay, well, you know, were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony just outright racist? 
and a lot of people saying, no, it was really a matter of funding and money and sort of being painted into a corner. Mm-hmm. So if, if anything from this conversation, this is even more a testament to the work of Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells, and so on and so forth for continuing in that pursuit of you know, the enfranchisement, not only of people of color, but also, uh, for, for women, mm-hmm. for women's suffrage. And, and that's also too, to why it's unfortunate that their stories are not told more often. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, we, you know, we, c- we couldn't even in one podcast give as detailed of a history of black women in the suffrage movement during this era as we would have liked. Um, so if, if you want some further reading and if you want to check out our sources to learn more about these women that we mentioned, you should head on over to stuffimnevertoldyou.com where we'll have the podcast posted. And if you click on the link, it'll have all of the sources inside of that podcast post. Um, but we also want to hear from you. Were there names that we left out? Um, I'm sure that there were. Uh, what are your, has this changed your perspective on the suffrage movement? Because Again, we don't we don't want to paint it in a negative light, but we need to be a little more honest about it, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. Everything wasn't puppies and kittens and rainbows during right. the suffrage movement. <laughs> right. Surprisingly. Also, Frederick Douglass. Can we just like in terms of like amazing dudes yeah. on the podcast? We should if there is a Sminty Men's Hall of Fame. Yeah. He definitely deserves a place. Um, so let us know your thoughts. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send us your emails. You can also reach us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Facebook as well. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a Facebook message here from Samantha about our episode on parasocial relationships and shipping called Fictional Attraction. She writes, Since my freshman year of college, I've gotten deeper and deeper into myriad fandoms and ships from which I hope to never emerge while meeting some truly amazing people. I wanted to let you guys know, though, that your definition of slash, my primary interest, is not correct. You defined it strangely as pairings or fanfic that deals exclusively with characters having sex, and I have no idea where that definition came from. Slash is simply pairings that are same sex and usually male as femme slash is used to define female pairings. Much of the fanfic associated with slash is not sexually explicit, just as much of het fanfic is very sexually explicit. There's a variety there as in every subsector of fanfic and fandom. Something else I wanted to mention is that while most researchers say that slash writers slash fans consist of mostly straight teen and preteen girls, Every Slash fan I know of, including myself, is a queer woman who writes and reads Slash fanfic largely out of a desire to see greater queer relationship representation within media than currently exists. Also because we too think it's hot. (laughs) Just wanted to put that out there, maybe as another example of how Slash shipping and fandoms can be representative of larger issues and struggles. So thanks, Samantha, for that insight on fanfic. Well, I have a message here from Jessica about our episode on Can Birth Control Kill You? Uh, she says, uh, I noticed that you ladies didn't really touch much on the adverse effects of birth control when taken with other medications. In the past, I was put on a drug for anxiety and an oral contraceptive. 
All doctors involved knew about all the drugs I was taking but weren't aware of any interactions. I eventually started having extreme dizziness and heart palpitations that eventually led to a grand mal seizure on the sidewalk while heading to work. Even after that, no one put together that it was the drugs that were interacting negatively until four months later when my gynecologist received a heads up about new studies that showed heart problems could be caused by the two drugs interacting. I immediately looked up the studies and saw that these heart problems could cause seizures and even death, but yet none of my doctors knew about them. Good news is that I went off the anxiety medication and am doing fine. Bad news is that my mom recently called several pharmacies about any potential interaction between the anxiety drug and oral contraceptives, and they weren't well-versed in these interactions. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Jessica. I'm sorry you had such a scary health emergency, but this is just another example of how important it is to educate yourself you know, about the drugs you're taking, about any type of medication you're taking, whether it's prescription or over-the-counter, asking your doctor those important questions and follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. Absolutely. And if you'd like to follow up with us, you can email us at momstuffatdiscovery.com. And for links to all of our social media and for every single podcast, blog, and video we've ever done here on Stuff Mom Never Told You, there's one place on the Internet that you need to go right now. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 